What do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. It belongs to me. If you can't handle rejection, then I think you better leave. You can call us fanatics, but the truth is we're hardcore. We love Hello, sentient beings of Earth. I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua. And I'm Pat. And you are listening to Get Off My World, a podcast by three men of a certain age who uh, love the classic era of Doctor Who and also the new era of Doctor Who when it suits our fancy. So, uh, yeah, it's funny of course, it's, true. <laughs> it's fairly true. As we are men of a certain age, we can be a little curmudgeonly and crabby about things, so we like to start off our show with something positive about Doctor Who that we've run into recently, mm. uh, a segment we call Temporal Grace. Uh. Would you like to go first, Pat? Sure. Thank you, Calvin. Mm. <laughs> uh, so for my temporal grace, this is going to be old news for Doctor Who fans uh, out there, probably. But uh, They cast Peter Davison as Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> He's the youngest Doctor ever. Uh, wow. But in case there's anyone out there... I don't who, think the Doctor should be blonde. <laughs> I know. I, I just. I, I, he's always going to be Tristan to me. It's like it's like it's like a blonde James Bond. <laughs> That'll never That's work. Preposterous, Calvin. <laughs> I would be so angry. I would write letters. Uh, no, this is uh, perhaps not quite as out of date as Peter Davis in here. But I want to talk about Nicholas Pegg. Have you guys heard about um, the thing? Mm-hmm. You okay? Yeah, Nicholas Pegg. We've talked about on this podcast. He's a writer and actor who has appeared as a Dalek in, like, tons of Doctor Who stuff. And he wrote at least one big finish that we talked about on this podcast, uh, The Spectre of Lanyon Moore, which I think we thought was a fairly good, you know, better than average Doctor Who one. Uh, he's also a expert in the works of David Bowie. And I have his big book on David Bowie, and that goes through every single song in exhaustive detail, which I dip into every now and then. Uh, But what I didn't know, because I'm not a regular reader of Doctor Who magazine, is that he had a a column until recently uh, under the pseudonym of The Watcher where uh, he would talk about various things in Doctor Who. And he was recently fired from Doctor Who magazine because he wrote an article and if you t- were to look at the first letter of each paragraph, it's sp- and you'll want to get your cloister bell ready here, Joshua. Um, it spelled out the message Panini, Panini being the publishers of Doctor Who magazine, Panini and BBC Worldwide are c- <laughs> So they found that out and they fired him. Or some people say that the, his column was going to be canceled anyway, and that's why he put the, uh, the, the C-word message in there, and yeah. I don't really know. But I, uh, whatever his reasoning, I thought that was great. I thought that was <laughs> hilarious. So uh, if you're out there, Nicholas Pegg, uh, thank you for doing that. <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> there was a part of me that thought that that was the beginning of a, another temporal grace for Pat. So I'm just laughing because it's like Pat's just like, yes. <laughs> no, it wasn't going anywhere. With it. We'll, we'll link a screenshot of the article in the. In I the thought show it was notes, going to be but... like the first clue in some elaborate like uh, alternate reality game. This is not. Re- <laughs> this is not Ready Player One. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my temporal grace starts with a lot of personal anxiety on my part because last night I was sitting at a tap room uh, and actually I was about to start editing an episode of this podcast when I get a text from Pat saying, are we on for tomorrow's recording (laughs) Um, with a thumbs up emoticon? And I was frozen in my seat because I had no idea we were recording anything at all. it was like a bad anxiety dream, um, and I've been having a lot of them lately about various overcommitments. <laughs> Weird, huh? <laughs> How unlike uh, you, Josh. Yeah. However, it then turns to my temporal grace because I was like, damn it, I'm going to make it there tomorrow night, and I'm going to watch all the homework. I'm going to do it right now. So I signed up for a seven-day free trial of BritBox, <laughs> ordered <laughs> a lineup of very delicious IPAs and just sat in blissful peace in the tap room watching Doctor Who for about three hours straight. And it might have been the most relaxing evening I have had in months. I guess what I'm trying to say is thanks for reminding me, Pat. (laughs) There's a good feeling when you can say to yourself, this is exactly what I need to be doing right now. Right? (laughs) Like everything else has to be pushed to the side. It's nice that the the microbrew phenomenon has has allowed uh, the creation of spaces where one can drink and just kind of do their own thing. And it's fine. (laughs) As opposed to constantly being hit on by women. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm so sick of that. Jeez. Man. Uh, Speaking of uh, micro-brews, do you want to talk about the beer that you guys are drinking (laughs) right now? It's a very good beer. It is from Insight Brewing, and uh, I picked it. Local Twin Cities Brewery. Picked it tonight because it's called Dankbot. And it made me think of Doctor Who. And it is dank. Yeah. There's not very much robotic about it, but... It's a Dalek sitting in his mom's basement just (laughs) sharing memes every day. It is a rather Dalek-y robot that's on the can here. Looks like a cross between a Dalek and the... um, Santaran robot from the Santaran experiment, which we'll be discussing <laughs> later. So it seemed very appropriate. The label says the autonomous nature of Dankbot, which I just <laughs> kind of love because it doesn't really make yeah. any sense. Well, for that. No, Dankbot has achieved self-awareness. <laughs> I am Dankbot. I am perfect. <laughs> I think I read that in a William Gibson novel back yeah. in 1992. Yeah. Maybe yeah. a Philip K. Dick one. One <laughs> You know, that techno-science fiction thriller from the early 70s, Dankbot, the Forbin Project. (laughs) Starring Julie Christie, right? Yeah. (laughs) Boy, yeah, that that didn't age well. Uh, Do you have a temporal grace? I I do, yes. Um, I stumbled onto a YouTube video that was uh, a bunch of things edited together from various old Doctor Who episodes. On YouTube? On YouTube. I know. And it just kind of gave me pause. But it was posted by a guy whose name on YouTube is Chlamydia Magic. Yeah, I know his work. Sure. <laughs> I don't know why, why you would pick that as your name. but yeah, anyway. I prefer his early stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it was more magical. But he put together a, a YouTube video called, The Doctor's Gonna Bust a Cap in Your Ass. 
And it's nothing but like edited together footage of the doctor using guns <laughs> with a gangsta rap in the background. Mm-hmm. So it's really not safe for work to, to watch this. But uh, <laughs> he posted a longer uh, sequel called "The Doctor's Gonna Bust Everything in Your Ass," which is which includes uh, the you know various punches and other kinds of violence that the doctor puts on. Lots of flips, I would uh, guess, on uh, on his villains. There was always this, you know, idea uh, back in the day that, like, oh, Doctor Who is really violent, you know, oh, you know, it's going to corrupt the children with all its violence, and I'm like, oh, Doctor Who isn't that violent, and then I watched this, and I'm like, <laughs> whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> when you montage it all together, you know, just dumb stuff like the first Doctor beating up that one guy in the Romans <laughs> suddenly seems really brutal. <laughs> Come on, Kelvin. I know from the doctor's daughter that the doctor doesn't even like punching a dude in the face. Yes. <laughs> it's the only thing you would ever I, know from the doctor's no, daughter. No, it kind of ties in with the uh, with the Santarin experiment, which we're going to be talking about in a bit. Well, I, I, for, really I forgot foreshadowing it today, aren't we? <laughs> I, I, I forgot how punchy early fourth doctor stories can be. Oh, he punches, he neck twists. Yeah, he, he's beating people up right and left. And, I, and that's just utterly not my image of the fourth doctor, really. But he got his collarbone broken doing it. Yes, he but did. I guess we'll save that for round uh, yeah. round four to be continued. <laughs> so for round two, our special topics Dalek today, Kelvin has a question for general discussion. Yes, take it away, Kelvin. Well, perhaps watching the violent uh, Doctor Who <laughs> YouTube video. I'll put this in my mind, but I was just wondering, what do you think is the most violent moment in Doctor Who? Hmm. I, I don't have anything in mind off the top of my head. Well, there's two different types of violence. Like, yeah. you're weighing the quantity of destruction. Right. Which is a topic we've already covered on our special topics. Just how many people he's yeah. murdered. I think we thought, like, Legopolis was probably the highest body count. But you're saying violence perpetrated by the doctor. Like how so, hardcore the doctor yeah. himself uh, well, yeah. well, like anything that's particularly Think startling. Think blowing up Scarrow. In blowing up Scarrow's up there. Daleks. But if you're talking just visceral violence that yeah. you're not used to seeing the doctor perpetrate upon another living being, I would say killing Shockeye in mm-hmm. The Two Doctors. Because he holds the cyanide over his face. They play it really real. Uh, the yeah. doctor's struggling the entire time to hold him as he dies. I don't think there's anything as violent as that. Mm-hmm. They, they did a lot of creepy violent stuff with Colin. But, uh, yeah, it's been there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we, In a different context, we talked about the first doctor beating up a dude in the Romans. Yes. Uh, but for me, I would think that like the most jarring one is that scene in Day of the Daleks. We haven't talked about it on the program no. yet. Uh, but it's outside and ogrons are running around. I think Unit is shooting them or whatever and there's just this extended sequence of John Pertwee like hopping up onto a thing and shooting a laser gun at the backs of retreating ogrons. <laughs> are like, they retreating? Just, I think he was think advancing toward him but it was still... He was just shooting them dead. It's a very James Bond yeah. kind of cavalier killing. Live and let die sort of callous bloodshed. Mm-hmm. And it's so out of character for the Doctor. Yeah. yeah. Even John Pertwee. And that brings up another side topic. Are these moments out of character? Were they justified? Yeah. 
that one seems just totally out of character. Like, I'm surprised it even made the final edit. Oh, I agree. I mean, yeah, there's but, tons of scenes with Unit blowing away aliens and the Doctor's just kind of in the neighborhood. But here he was enthusiastically partaking in the slaughter. The first thing that comes to my mind, and it's not really something the Doctor does so much, just his completely indifferent reaction to it is um, the guys falling in the tub of acid and vengeance on Varos. <laughs> yeah, he makes some dumb joke about it. Right? Yeah, it's like, pardon me if I don't join you or something like that. And, and he just kind of throws his coat over his arm and walks off and it's just like, they were dissolved in acid! <laughs> <laughs> They're like, half their face is missing. They're like, ah! I'm like, good grief. And that points to that fine line of violence in Doctor Who. Yeah. Where I think a moment like that is far too cavalier. But mm-hmm. then the new series, it's not realistic to have him ball over every single death no. that is clearly self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. But the Doctor throughout the entire history in self-defense will kill somebody else to save his life. Yeah. I mean, sometimes uh, when he wants to make a point, or I think when he has a bigger audience, he doesn't tend to kill people. Because most of the time I can think of when he's really brutal, it's usually in scenes where he's all alone. Mm. Or saving the life of someone else. But obviously in Two Doctors, he's out in the woods, this guy's chasing him with a knife, and wants to eat him and his friends. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't think it's out of character to have him kill Shockeye in self-defense. I think it was just a particularly brutal way to do it. His method is really yeah. bizarrely brutal. I still really like it. Yep. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite scenes. Well, there's that time he was interrogating the guy in the bathtub and he kicked the space heater into electrocute. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait. <laughs> That's from Russia with Love. Oh, okay. yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Easy mistake to make. But we'll save that for our <laughs> From Russia with Love podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, but for, for brutality that is not inflicted by the Doctor, are there things that come immediately to mind? Um, the Two Doctors is kind of full of those, right? Yeah, There's it really all is. All of the um, slavering cannibalism that Shakai and Jacqueline Pierce indulge in. Um, I, I'm trying to separate out violence and just really horrific moments. When that first guy changed into the crinoid in the Seeds of Doom, that was super horrifying yeah. to me mm-hmm. uh, as a kid. Well, it's that body horror. Yeah. I mean, the half-human, half-Dalek in the glass casing in Revelation of the Dalek mm-hmm. is pretty distressing. The, the moment that uh, I always remember is the Cyberman leader crushing Lytton's hands <laughs> in Attack of the Cybermen, <laughs> which is another one for lots yeah. of mm-hmm. horrifying violence. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was the first time I ever really got a sense like, oh, whoa, these Cybermen are super strong, and they're made out of metal, and they're going to crush your bones. One of the bad guys with the gun in Caves of Androzani, when, like, he they, like, he makes the deal with someone, and as they're walking down the corridor, he just, it's like an afterthought, just decides to shoot them. Stotes. Stotesy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maurice Rovis. Again, not an act of violence specifically, but in Caves of Androzani, yeah. when he's trying to shove the cyanide capsule uh, mm-hmm. down the mouth of the other guy and it's just a violent scene mm-hmm. even though no one dies in it it's yeah. a more adult realistic depiction of something horrible uh, we talked about it uh, when we talked about the Dalek Master Plan but mm-hmm. Katarina's death is oh that is so she ages into nothing yeah, yeah. No, no, she goes out the airlock. Yes, airlock. Sarah Kingdom. Sarah Kingdom, and ages. that's. A, I'm sorry, there are two horrific, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> truly horrific deaths in it's there. It's extra that, horrific with Katerina because um, she has no comprehension of what's going on. Yeah, she just got there too. Yeah. Well, this is cheerful. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I guess you know maybe to expand this a bit. Is this a good thing? <laughs> 
Or the violence. You know, um, maybe it's just hardened, cynical American here, but I just like it just seems like, well, it's adventure fiction. Why wouldn't there be violence yeah, in it? I mean, it speaks to genre, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with any type of violence, as far as I'm concerned, as long as it's, you know, in service of what the story is trying to do. Yeah. When it works against the nature of the story, then that's a problem. And with something as all-encompassing as Doctor Who, sometimes it's for children, sometimes it's for adults, sometimes it's for 45-year-old fans of the show. <laughs> More frequently not. But so I remember at the time people finding some of that violence in Vengeance on Varos very, uh, very unpleasant. Uh, I was turned off by Caves of Androzani, as I think I've mentioned on this program before. I was like, I, this isn't, this is too dark for me. This isn't what I want as a 16-year-old or mm-hmm. however old I was having grown up watching Tom Baker. It was, it was jarring to me to see that. Um, I mean, Doctor Who evolves and it changes, but it doesn't evolve and change at the same rate for all of its audiences mm-hmm. at the same time. Exactly. I really liked all the Eric Sayward violence because it happened to coincide, like people described the Harry Potter books. It felt like Doctor Who was growing up with yeah. me, and I was getting this sort of little hints of darker, more adult style stories. But yeah, if you happen to be a five year old tuning in during that era. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, a thing with me, and I'm. I'm thinking of the sixth Doctor era here. Is like, was like combining the violence with pretty extreme goofiness. <laughs> I guess I was thinking of like the two Doctors and Shockeye again. I mean, mm-hmm. Shockeye is a broadly comic character mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but he's especially a, when he's goofing around with Patrick Troughton. Yeah, and then you know he's like, I'm going to commit utter cannibalism right now. Just mm-hmm. kill this nice. Wait, does he kill the, the, the restaurateur? Yeah, he stabs yeah, him. He bleeds just, to death. Yeah, that didn't really seem to be that in service to the story or anything. It was just like, we got to be brutal here. Just well, Robert Holmes worked out a lot of his stuff in, <laughs> in scripts, I think. I think The Two Doctors is a great piece of black comedy, and that's what it's intended to be. I can see why people would be turned off by it, but I think it's internally consistent. Yeah. That's what it is from the beginning and thematically and tone-wise it balances the line between this melodrama, comedy and extreme violence, but it's dealing with issues of violence thematically throughout. Um, yeah, I, so I, I think it works as a piece whether it jibes well with the rest of Doctor Who around it. Um, that's up for fans to decide um, and I can totally see why it would turn someone off. I love it. I certainly like the story a lot. I'm glad that the rest of Doctor yeah, Who I, is not very much like yeah, it. Yeah, I never, I never got that the two Doctors was supposed to be black comedy. I think <laughs> it definitely frankly. was, but um, it, it's maybe a tone that you're not super familiar with as a child growing up. Yeah. I, I say you, by which I mean me. Right, yeah, well, yeah. One is not familiar with black comedy as a 12-year-old necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just never saw it in, in a black comedy in a real science fictional context. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think of it as like, mob comedies were like, oh, we accidentally put a hit on the wrong guy. Yeah. Well, I saw the two doctors mm-hmm. right around the same time I saw Brazil. And to me, uh-huh. it was very similar. I mean, totally different themes and ideas yeah, and budget. Yeah. But, I mean, tone-wise, I thought there was a lot of similarities. Hmm. And I, I okay. connected those as a 14, 15-year-old kid. Yeah. Brazil's one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's a dark comedy. Yeah. I think it's that it's, it was weird to stumble across such a dark comedy in the middle of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that's exactly all we have to say. Yeah. And now round three, the randomizer. And the randomizer, as you can hear, has picked for us the Sontaran Experiment. 
Uh, yes, it was the third story in the 12th season, featuring, of course, Tom Baker. Shot entirely on location. It was a two-part story. Did I already say that? You did not. Um, it was written by Bob Barker and Dave Martin. Heavily rewritten, I think, in places by Robert Holmes. Or it certainly sounds very Robert Holmesy once Steyer shows up. It was shot not on film, though, but on video, which is rare for location shooting. At least in this era. Yeah. By the time you get to Sylvester McCoy, you see a lot of it, but it uh, doesn't do the story any favors, I would say. No, yeah. but at least it's a pretty locale. Yes, Those it are is. some nice rocks, man. Yeah, and it was uh, originally supposed to be part of the Ark in Space. It was going to be... Uh, a six-part story with like them going down to the planet Earth and coming back a lot, and then out of just uh, production ease and expense or something, they decided, well, let's split this into two stories. Yeah, and so Ark in Space is entirely on set. Yes. And this is entirely on location. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen that original six-part idea. I think that uh, might have worked better. Mm-hmm. Um, I always admire this, though, from the point of view of just Doctor Who doing the best with its budgetary constraints and weird issues that come up as someone who has spent 20 years making low-budget theater. (laughs) I always admire that, where it's like, hey, can we take all these constraints and turn them into something better? Also, this is hugely nostalgic Doctor Who for me. Even with its various flaws and shortcomings, this is definitely a patch on my cozy Doctor Who quilt of yeah. childhood nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm super conflicted about it because the very first Doctor Who I ever saw, and I've mentioned more than once on this show, I saw episode four of Robot, and I was intrigued, and then I watched uh, the four episodes of Ark in Space, and then I was hooked for life. But had I seen this first, I don't know that I would have paid much attention to it at all. It's mm. I, I've seen Santaran experiment like the power of Kroll an unusual number of times. Like just like <laughs> how many times have I seen the Santaran experiment? It was, it was one of the first that was released on video. Mm-hmm. It was constantly shown on PBS as the block of Doctor Who would rotate and my wife and I will go through Doctor Who and we'll watch him and then watch him again for this podcast. I guess what I'm saying is... is You're that sick I, to death I am of sick to death of this experiment. And I was when I was like 12, too. It's uh, I don't mean to say that I hate the story, but mm-hmm. it, it's just kind of a... Mm-hmm. Meh, it's very chintzy looking. It kind of depresses me. <laughs> it's empty and, and people are being mean to each other. <laughs> I, I just kind of like the weird... I don't know why that's funny to me. <laughs> uh... I just kind of like how minimal it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a two-episode story. It's just a handful of characters in the middle of nowhere. They're in the, did, they're in the middle of Trafalgar Square. Yeah, didn't the doctor say they were in Trafalgar <laughs> Square 10,000 years in the future or something? Yeah, I just kind of, you know, it's basically just the doctor dealing with this one Santaran who seems to have profound biological ignorance. <laughs> mm, they appear to asphyxiate when immersed in fluids for a long period of time. You know, like... I think that's most carbon-based life forms you've just described. I gotta say, the Santaran research teams are... <laughs> if if you're going to go and experiment on human beings, wouldn't you go to one of the thousands of worlds they've apparently colonized instead of the one planet in the galaxy where it's almost guaranteed that there aren't going to be any because it was destroyed by solar flares 10,000 years ago? The, uh, the Santarans are clearly like an all-military culture and they're 
scientific base has, has clearly withered over the centuries. Yeah, the National Suntour and Science Foundation funding <laughs> is, is very, very minimal. And they could get one guy going around experimenting on every race in the galaxy. Here, just go torture some people. We'll call it science. <laughs> I guess when you put a heavy weight on their chest, they die. <laughs> Oh, and those guys struggled so much with selling that heavyweight. I, I have nothing against the actors here. Yeah. I mean, they're doing what they can. But they should have just cast mimes. Because yeah. this also has my favorite Doctor Who trope, which is invisible force field. Which is another thing that people struggle to mime, those invisible force fields. <laughs> you know what's more energy efficient than an invisible force field? A visible <laughs> A wall. <laughs> Not as portable. <laughs> I mean, the, well, okay. The number In your of, face, Mr. Logic. The number of man hours it would take to erect a brick wall is probably, you know, in terms of energy expenditure, less than whatever portable generator you're using to, okay, I'll, shut, I'll stop now. One, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think the production of this story is almost more interesting than the story itself. Well, I mean, it would have to be. <laughs> <laughs> the the, uh, the spacemen, uh, they cast all South African actors and just told them to use their natural accent because they thought that odd combination of English and Dutch and African might represent, like, a future accent. Oh, there was one Scots guy. There was one Scots but, guy. But, uh, yes, you're right. The future is South African. <laughs> Which is an, an alarming concept in many ways. Because all future humans suck, as we have determined <laughs> yes. on this program before. They are all terrible. The first response to the doctor is to shoot him and then threaten to torture him. Yeah. Uh, the They're only, really terrible people. Roth was decent, but he was insane. Yes. He had been driven insane by uh, the Santaran torture. Mm-hmm. And their wacky robot. <laughs> kind of, yeah, I was watching this last night, and Carrie's like, oh, look how cute he's he is. He's so cute. Oh, look little, at that. There's little antennas. Look at that little dank robot. <laughs> and the, and the, the really skinny, tiny little claw arms. Yep. Zip. Yeah. Rap, rap, rap. Just done with good old reverse footage uh, special effects. <laughs> we, we had a little foreshadowing of the five doctors and the um, falling down inclines. The, the, yeah, <laughs> two gentle slopes in yes. this episode. <laughs> yes, um, and people just kept falling down it a yeah. lot. I think Styra must have gone out and, like, within a five-mile radius, just lubed, <laughs> lubed up every precipice he mm-hmm. could find with Crisco or something. Well, the first it was, one, it was, one, it it was one of his experiments, yep. you know, the effect of humans on hilly terrain. <laughs> the first one was Roth's fault. He had covered. He had made a deadfall You're right. with uh, leaves, and that's that's what Sarah fell down. I'm not, I, I think I turned away, and I couldn't. I, I, I'm, so I'm not sure why Tom fell down. Uh, I think same it was in, or similar slope. Tended as a joke because he does have that great line about does so like Harry falls down a whacking oh, great yeah. subsidence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Robert Holmes. <laughs> that is a totally whacking great Robert subsidence. There, there, for for a two episode story, there is an awful lot of falling into the subsidence. <laughs> <laughs> it's like like Harry falls into it, the Doctor falls into it. Da, da, da. I. St- Still like this episode, and partly because yeah. I've watched it over and over again. I'm desensitized to its shortcomings, and so when I watch it for the umpteenth time, what I zero in on are all the nice small moments that were clearly dropped in by Robert Holmes, or small moments that were just created by the chemistry between you know the Doctor Harry and Sarah. Well, there's and one there's of my favorite teams. Of yeah, there's a great moment. It's a great joke uh, where the Doctor's 
going through his pockets and says, never throw anything away, Harry. And then he can't find it and says, it's a mistake to clutter one's pockets, Harry. It's a decent joke, but I think what makes it is that Harry just doesn't respond to it and just goes, yes, doctor. <laughs> this is very <laughs> deadpan, lets the joke go, lets the contradiction go. And it's just those small details at the... Uh, very beginning when the doctor is very unconcerned about where Sarah is and where she's screaming from and Harry calls her a dear thing and she says Harry I'm not a thing <laughs> I want to make a Doctor Who t-shirt that has Sarah in her ridiculous yellow outfit that just says <laughs> Harry I'm not a thing <laughs> that outfit by the way it's yellow it no one ever tried in any way to make Sarah super attractive in the way that she dressed but nope. This is really beyond the pale, you guys. There's, <laughs> there is, this is especially sexless, even for Doctor Who. Uh, Although Steyer still identifies her as a female of the species, so it's not Yes, yeah, so he's not completely sexless. ignorant, Calvin. No, he's, he's got yeah. some biology knowledge. His first assessment is that uh, females appear to have no military justification. Offen- <laughs> offensive value, nil. Uh, but, you know, when, when Trump fires John Bolton, oh, Steyer yeah. might make a great national, national security, security advisor. advisor. Oh, God. That is I think so Health and Human Services is oh, probably a better role for this guy. You know, I think oh, really boy. any cabinet that, position yeah. for Steyer would work. That, that, that would be about as, as, as logical as anything he's done. He's probably gone through four or five security advisors by the time this podcast airs anyway. Yeah. But, but, you're right, uh, people go... Who's John Bolton? <laughs> right, right. See the guy from Game of Thrones? <laughs> There's a great cameo from the Mara <laughs> when the oh, rope yeah. turns into the snake. Yeah. And, then, and also it, the living mud from X the Unknown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, hey, it's that guy. And I had to look him up on IMDb to see what else he had been in. That's uh, It's kind of interesting just that the climax of the story is the doctor just going, well, I'm just going to punch him out. Yep. I'm going to tire him out. So he goes to recharge. Mm-hmm. And that's actually my favorite line in the entire mm-hmm. episode, too, is Steyer's going back into his ship. And he kind of looks <laughs> over his shoulder and says, I shall kill you all, but first I have more important tasks to perform. Like, yeah, stop fronting, Steyer. <laughs> like, we know. Come on. You're taking a dump. Okay, fine. <laughs> you're going to go in there, you're going to smoke something and sit for a you, minute, and then you're you going to come back. You need to do that edit on YouTube with a big toilet floor. <laughs> he goes in there. And then he comes staggering out like oh, just, something went terribly wrong in that bathroom. I'll light a candle in there. Oh, I am truly a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> I, uh, in yes. all fairness, I love this episode. It does not ask you to be more than a 12-year-old boy <laughs> at any time. I'm quite fond of it. I mean, it's it, it just is a, a really cheap, weird, brutal... Uh, you know, we got to cut the budget way down for this one, folks. Cheap, uh, weird, and brutal. The new film by <laughs> Errol Morris. <laughs> you know, given all those weird constraints, I'm still kind of weirdly fond of it. And, and it might be just because, uh, as I've mentioned before, as I've gotten older, I've, got, I've come to appreciate the very small-scale Doctor Who stories uh, a lot more. Doesn't get much smaller. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> Pat's appreciation it's, doesn't get much it's, smaller. <laughs> it's, it's smaller than the smugglers. <laughs> uh, the smugglers had so much. Oh, okay, anyway. Oh, I wish we were watching the smugglers. <laughs> For our fourth round today, we have something very special. 
Christopher Eccleston recently opened up about his turbulent time on Doctor Who, describing his discomfort with light comedy. Uh, What Eccleston didn't say was that when he left the show, Russell T. Davies tried to lure him back with a grittier, more realistic take on the Daleks, written by one of America's greatest living playwrights, David Mamet. Get Off My World has obtained, for you, our listeners, an exclusive excerpt from this lost script and would like to perform it for you now. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy David Mamet's Glengarry Davros. This is bullshit! All I need is a good lead! How do they expect us to conquer the universe with all these deadbeat leads? Tell me about it! Yesterday they sent me to Spiridon! Spiridon! The doctor showed up and encased me in ice from a fucking volcano! How much plunger-sucking sense does that make? At least they didn't send you to Castrobalva. The whole place is nothing but stairs. Stairs going up, stairs going down, stairs on the fucking ceiling. I have half a mind to go work for the Mavellans. I've had offers, you know. Shut your mutant hole. Here comes Davros. Well, gentlemen, are you ready to do or die tonight? All I need is a lead, a good lead. Excellent. That is precisely what we're here to discuss. I'm only waiting for one more Dalek. Ah, here he is now. Ah, damn. I just landed an invasion force on Earth. I am back in the game, boys. Put my name on the board. You're a Dalek. You don't have a name. Fuck you. That's my name. Wait a minute. Did you say Earth? What time period? Earth year 4042. What the fuck does it matter? I'm on the board. According to the temporal database, the Dalek invasion of Earth 4042 will be foiled by the Doctor. He will arm the rebel forces with sports equipment supercharged by the hand of Omega. It says here he will be killed by a wiffle ball. Please, Davros, this invasion can't fall through. My wife needs an operation. Her vision is impaired, cannot see. Yes, yes, I've heard it before. It's 7.30. Time to begin. Daleks, let me introduce you to tonight's motivational speaker. Hello, asshats. Alec Baldwin, this is bullshit. You don't give us leads. You don't give us support. You don't give us dick. Excuse me. You're talking about what here? Bitching about some invasion you botched? About some broad's no-good eye stock? About how the High Council of Gallifrey sent some son of a bitch back in time to throw hats at you? Well, boo-fucking-who. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down! Coffee is for superior beings only. You think I'm fucking with you? I am not fucking with you. I'm here from Scarrow. I'm here from the Emperor fucking Dalek, and I'm here on a mission of mercy. You call yourself a Dalek, you son of a bitch? I don't have to listen to this shit! You certainly don't, pal, because we're adding a little something to this month's contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac time capsule. Second prize is a set of steak plungers. Third prize is we exterminate your ass. Oh, have I got your attention now? You get the picture? You can't conquer the leads you're given? You can't conquer shit? You are shit! The leads are weak. The leads are weak? You're weak. You know what it takes to conquer the universe? It takes balls. Little green balls encased in bonded polycarbide armor. 
If you're such hot shit, what are you doing here? Who are you? I am the master, and you will fucking obey me. You're the master? Yes, I stole the body of Alec Baldwin. A nice step up from Julia Roberts' ugly brother, don't you think? What a fucking joke! We don't have to take this crap from a washed-up hack like you! Uh, why don't you go to lunch? Oh, I'm the hack, huh? Well, raise your plunger if you've ever killed the doctor. Twice! Will you please go to lunch? At least we've never been killed by Susan. That happened in a book. It's non-canonical bullshit! I am Davros! I am your creator! You will go to lunch! Hey! Where are you going? I haven't told you the secret to conquering the universe yet. A, B, C. Always bring costumes. Doesn't matter what. A vicar, a scarecrow, even a super racist futuristic Chinaman. The less fucking sense it makes, the better, huh? Yeah. I think that went pretty well, don't you think, Davros? Go the fuck to lunch. For our fifth and final round... We're going to talk about the Eighth Doctor Time War series from Big Finish. The first two episodes tonight, The Starship of Theseus and Echoes of War, both directed by Ken Bentley, and the first one written by John Dorney, and the second one by Matt Fitton. These are relatively new, at least at the time that we're recording them. Mm-hmm. They've probably been out for about three and a half years by the time you're listening to this. <laughs> the star Paul McGann at the very opening of the Time War that we hear referenced in the new series. So this serves as sort of a bridge between the old series, the TV movie, and the new series. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also star Jacqueline Pierce as Cardinal Elistra, mm-hmm. who we heard a lot of in the the War Doctor audios yep. with John Hurt. Not and for, she not made very a long cameo ago. appearance in the last Eighth Doctor box set not set in the Time War. Right, the one with the Eleven. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, first, the Starship of Theseus. That's the first one we're going to talk about yep. tonight. We're also going to talk about Echoes of War. For listeners who might not have heard these... Broadly speaking, what's the plot? Uh, We are introduced to the Eighth Doctor with a seemingly brand new companion who we've never met before, and they end up on a luxury spaceship liner. The Theseus. uh, The Theseus, and they are deciding to just have some fun, but in typical Doctor Who fashion, danger and intrigue ensue. And as the story unfolds... Now here, if you want to check out this box set, it's pretty entertaining. You might want to skip ahead or download it from Big Finish and listen to it, because now we get into spoiler territory. But there are some sort of echoes or ripples from the Time War that is changing reality around the Doctor. And I think in the most interesting twist in this episode, his companion keeps changing Sheena. names. Starts with Sheena, becomes Emma, becomes Louise. Louise, and is eventually just sort of erased or referenced that she might have died in a Dalek attack on the ship. Because yeah, the I'm sorry to hear that, changing. because yeah. Sheena was a punk rocker. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if I missed it, but yeah, she just vanishes from the narrative, and I'm not sure that the Doctor even remembers that she was ever there. No, he's yeah. convinced that he had someone there, and someone else tells him no, you said someone who was with you died in the attack. So we end on a reality in which this companion apparently died. And you're right, even though the Eighth Doctor doesn't really remember that, so doesn't feel anything about it. 
Yes, the the Theseus is either a luxury liner with a dark secret yeah. that is taking people uh, on tours of uh, distant parts of the galaxy, or it's a former luxury liner that has been converted into a refugee ship mm-hmm. that is taking people away from a planet that's been destroyed by Daleks in the Time War. And that depends on kind of moment to moment yep. whether the ripples of the Time War are pushing it in one direction or another. So the classicist in me, of course. <laughs> um, I was waiting for this, Pat. Well, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Lay it on us. Uh, the ship of Theseus is an old philosophical conundrum. Mm-hmm. And it dates back to the classical world. And uh, Wikipedia tells me that the earliest reference that we know of in print is from the Greek writer Plutarch. And uh, they handily quoted the original quotation from Plutarch, which I'm going to read to you right now. Mm-hmm. The ship wherein Theseus and the youth of Athens returned from Crete had 30 oars and was preserved by the Athenians down even to the time of Demetrius Phalaris, for they took away the old planks as they decayed, putting in new and stronger timber in their places insomuch that this ship became a standing example among the philosophers for the logical question of things that grow, one side holding that the ship remained the same and the other contending that it was not the same. So, in other words, if you replace every single Mm -hmm. part of the ship of Theseus, is it still the ship of Theseus Mm -hmm. once all that's done? And you see this... Over and over again, I I think it happens in a Terry Pratchett novel. Uh, There's a reference that um, Thomas Hobbes makes to the ship of Theseus. The Twelfth Doctor makes this veiled reference about regeneration in his first episode. Only he talks about a broom. Yes, yeah, you replace the handle of the broom, and then you replace the bristles of the broom, Mm -hmm. and is it the same broom after the end of it? And, you know, various philosophers over the years have had various uh, answers to whether this is, you know, there's some kind of form out there that the ship partakes of and so that it is the same thing because it is intended to be the same thing or because its purpose is the same, its teleological end is the same, or from a materialist point of view, that is clearly not because every part of it has been replaced, but then that also opens up philosophical conundra about, like, say, you and me and Kelvin here <laughs> and even Tony over there. Like, if all of our atoms have been replaced over the course of our lives, if, are we still the same people that we think we are? So this has obvious relevance not only for the story that's being told right here in the starship of Theseus, where the, the ship itself and all the people on it are getting replaced, but in a wider fashion, uh, about Doctor Who itself. Can you replace every single part of Doctor Who and have it still be Doctor Who? You know what I mean? You replace the lead act, you replace the companions, you replace every single writer, mm-hmm. blah, 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 over the course of it. You replace the medium with Rep- the audio medium. <laughs> audio medium. Uh, you don't want to push that too far because the, the concept of the ship of Theseus is that things are being replaced with identical other things. The oar is being replaced by an oar. It's not being replaced by Patrick Troughton. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because so, he wouldn't get very far. Right. right. He'd be very upset, I would think. Why does my or keep saying, oh, my giddy on? <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, but, you know, if I was going to use a doctor as an or, I'd probably go with Colin Baker. He's got the he's got the big coat. You think so? Yeah. Oh, we've we've lost this conversation already. If we're in the witch doctor, would make a better or territory. We're drifting to the Dardanelles, I think. Here, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't want to take this too far in this direction to get away from the actual story itself. But I mean, they they called it the Starship of Theseus. They're making this comparison explicit. Mm -hmm. I don't think they tackle that in any great detail, but yet it's also something they are raising as an issue of the time war, as reality changes. The Doctor seems to think that these erased realities are real lost things. It's always difficult to know from Doctor Who story to Doctor Who story how much value he ascribes to alternate timelines. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, one of the Virgin novels by Jim Mortimer called Blood Heat, which has a... um, The Silurians. The Silurians. Yeah, the third Doctor wasn't around to stop the Silurian invasion in the 1970s, and so they've taken over the Earth. So the seventh Doctor comes back and he meets the old unit guys and things like that, but his intention is to close off that timeline, he's going to eradicate it because it shouldn't be there. It shouldn't be there in the first place, and he's only going to wait long enough for his companions, Ace and, and Benny, to accustom themselves to the idea of doing that. He's respecting their finer feelings, I think, is yeah. what he says. But it, it seems like, well, this is you know some kind of morbid outgrowth like a cancer or whatever that I'm going to lop off, off. not that it's an entire alternate universe full of real people that should be protected in the same way that the original one should be. He clearly doesn't have that position, and I'm not sure exactly mm-hmm. where he falls in these four stories. And I think that's part of the purpose of this box set is to begin to articulate the Eighth Doctor's position on the time war as it begins. And we know from watching the TV series and the War Doctor how it evolves, but uh, we haven't spent a lot of time establishing his feelings about it pre-war or at the beginning of the war. Yeah, and that's uh, a big part of how his character is going to develop or not develop over the course of these stories, too, is whether he wants to engage in the war or meeting other people who don't want to engage in it or in what way, under what terms is he going to engage in the war. And we'll have more to talk about that in a future episode as we talk about episodes three and four where they really get into the details about that. But for now... He's kind of learning about the war for the first time, right? Like, he knows that it, it's kind of a potential. It feels like this is the first time it's caught up with him, because he says specifically, I've been staying out of it. And this appears to be the first time he's failed mm-hmm. to skirt the edges of it. He has officially been caught up in it. And so I think that opening's really nice as an, a way to introduce him to the time war, that he can't escape it, that his history has somehow been rewritten when he arrives on this ship. And he's pretty much enmeshed in it it's at that point. It's fairly daring that it doesn't get written back. Mm-hmm. That kind of surprised me, actually. Yeah, like, we don't see Sheena Emma Louise again. Yeah. One thing I kind of enjoyed about this is the troll under the bridge. It reminded me of something from like a season 24 Sylvester McCoy episode of Doctor Who. Uh, a little dark, but a little silly at the same time. But that's really the conflict. Yeah, it's kind of a bait and switch because there's a troll under the bridge that they're feeding passengers to Mm -hmm. in one reality, but then that gets written out or at least obscured in the other one when the Daleks Mm -hmm. start showing up. Well, yeah, it it goes from involuntary sacrifices to this extra-dimensional demon thing or whatever it is. 
to voluntary sacrifices to the extra dimension. So the others can escape. Which is pretty dark. I think it's a nice introduction to the time where in that the doctor's in his most lightest of eighth doctor moods at the opening. Mm -hmm. He's clearly having fun with his new companion. Um, There's very typical doctor companion banter, but Mm -hmm. done really well. And so when the war closes around him, it is really a, a meaningful dark thing. And what about episode two, Echoes of War? Echoes. Echoes of War. I would say that this is probably the flimsiest of the four. Oh, I, strong, I, strong, yes. I strongly agree. Yes. yes. There's almost no story here, and the story that is there is well-trod territory. I'm going to back up and say I thought that this was quite a good arc. Spoilers, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's, it's weird discussing these in isolation yeah. and not in terms of the whole story. But yeah. yeah, but I did feel a little sour about Echoes of War the way I do with a lot of big finish these days because it seems like they're so decompressed. They take so long to tell the story because, among other things, everything has to be done through dialogue. Every detail has to be explained. And part of this is because I've been reading old Silver Age Legion of Superhero <laughs> stories, which, <laughs> which it's are not a fair comparison. exact opposite of this, you know, is to solve some sort of minor inconvenience, Superboy might just fly to the other side of the galaxy or go back in, in time to ancient Atlantis. <laughs> yeah, it, like one panel, like, I'm going to grab your magic necklace, do-do-do-do-do, and then come back. And so, like, Jerry Siegel or Ed, Edmund Hamilton would have done the whole time war in, like, eight pages. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind You of forget how compressed Silver Age mm-hmm. DC stories could be. Just, but. Yeah, there's just a little side note here, um, but it's, you know, com- in comparison to, like, Echoes of War, which is not only kind of a story that we've seen many times before, mm-hmm. but it seems longer than it's 50 minutes mm-hmm. because of because It, it, of it really just felt like a stall yeah. to me. Like, we got we got to get four discs out of this. Uh, and just for anyone yeah. who hasn't heard it, the Doctor escapes the starship with his new companion, which we talked about too. Bliss. Bliss, and, um, and, and a husband and wife and a bunch of other refugees uh, from the starship and crash on this planet that is having... What by now, after listening to the War Doctor audios, um, is a pretty typical time war situation where the planet is dying and coming back to life over and over again. And there is a Dalek that has been affected by that and has somehow de-evolved and forgotten who he is. So it's sort of a friendly Dalek, which we've seen a lot out of Big Finish. Poor out old of, doll. Yeah, I, I mean, liked it's, doll. It's cute and it's well done, but because the rest of the story has so little to offer. Where are my friends? <laughs> You know, it's just, it's 50 minutes of them caught in the evolving and devolving forest where the trees grow and then they decay and die and grow back. And the vague monkey creature things that are just kind of there and don't really do much. I mean, they like, they like kidnap someone. Every interaction with them happens off stage. We're just told about it. So we don't have any investment in these beings Mm -hmm. other than just they're innocent. So we know that from a narrative point of view, so they don't deserve to die. But other than that, we're left to learn some stuff about the individual characters, like learn a little more about Bliss, learn a little bit of, more about the husband and wife characters whose name I'm forgetting. Nothing happens. It just, they wander around. I will say this, in better written Big Finish yeah. stories, it is nice to occasionally have a really plot light episode because yeah. you don't have to deal with all the exposition that an audio requires. You can just have character moments. However, this one fails to provide any real in-depth character it moments yeah. either. And so, right. yeah, definitely my least favorite of the set. 
Can I say the two things that, or one thing that I like about each one of these quite a bit? Yes. So Starship of Theseus has a Faceless Ones reference. Yes, Listen for that one uh, if you pick it up. And then they, he makes a casual reference, the Eighth Doctor does, in Echoes of War to Jane's Guide to Time <laughs> Weapons, which is fun for an old wargamer like me, because of course the Jane's Guides are reference books to like the fighting ships and mm. uh, airplanes and things like that. And they, they date back to the very first one, Fred Jane's All the World's Fighting Ship, was in 1898. Mm-hmm. So, 30 years ago these books have been uh, these books started so it's nice to know that the Janes people are still going for time weapons at, at this indeterminate point in the future and at this point Bliss does not have much of a personality it's, it's nice that she's a scientist yeah. we haven't had that in a while she's uh, it, apparently it, it, Indian yeah, but it would be nice if she had a character, and that's really uh, my well, only well, qualm with these first. It, it, it's the, like her two. weird introduction because of time distortion stuff. She's just there. There's no story of Bliss and the Doctor meeting or why they met, or you know. Depending on subsequent box sets, this could be a really interesting way to introduce a companion and it might be that we intentionally know very little about her and it will be like really Mel. interesting yep, to yeah, find no, out later. No, it could, you know, Bliss could wind up being uh, being uh, another big, Mel. How awesome would that be, guys? <laughs> yeah, uh, like, like a bigger figure in, in later stories as, as gaps get filled in. Mm-hmm. And we're going to end this on like a weirdly downbeat note, I think, which I don't intend to, but Echoes of War is just sort of like the doldrums in the middle of this story. Mm -hmm. Um, But as I said before, I quite like this box set. We're going to be returning to this next episode to talk about the final two stories, and then that'll give more of a sense of, I think, the scope of what what they're trying to accomplish in this box set. But for now, uh, we're going to leave it in this weird, is it, isn't it, sort of of indeterminate, backwards, forwards (laughs) kind of space. Um, Is there, are there final things that you want to say or immediately undo saying (laughs) before we close out this episode? Uh, Just a simple statement that I think Paul McGann is fantastic at this entire box set. He just seems to get better and better on audio, developing his very different take on the Eighth Doctor from the TV movie. Well, he's just still see the line that started at the TV movie. And he's just really come over to it, hasn't he? I mean, at the beginning it was... I guess I will do these audios to make money. And now he's like, this is my life now. Yeah, he's, mm-hmm. This is what I do. Although you can't see him, you can only hear his voice. And so I imagine that your wife and the other, Paul McGann, what was the name of that organization? The, the Paul Estrogen Brigade? Uh, estrogen. Es- yeah, Estrogen. Estrogen. That's a totally the, different The Vladimir and Estrogen. <laughs> the, no, the, the, the Paul McGann Etrigan. <laughs> no, no, not the Jason Blood. <laughs> <laughs> the Paul McGann Estrogen Brigade. That's it. Yes. And that's our podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider uh, writing an iTunes review for us or following us on Facebook or even Instagram. Just uh, connect with us yeah. in a non-weird way. Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, we will be listening to the second part of the Eighth Doctor Time War box set and discussing... In the randomizer, the two-part Peter Davison story, The King's Demons. Ah. <laughs> Until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying, Get off my world! world.
off my toilet, you suntarred <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Others right. have to use it too, you know? <laughs> All right, we're gonna barrel There's like here. a million clones out here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a rock festival. They're all lining up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we lost Calvin.